everybody. Welcome along to the Event Industry News Podcast. My name's James Dixon, wishing you all, as always, a very good morning, afternoon or evening, whenever or wherever you tune in to today's podcast from. And on with today's guest. Um, our guest today is somebody who, if you've been watching the media uh, intensely over the last few months, and let's face it, who who hasn't? You may well have seen his name or his face on some of the major news channels as he represents and speaks uh, very eloquently, I might add, about the state of the uh, industry and the festival industry particularly. Nick Morgan is our guest today. Nick, welcome along to the podcast. Hello, yeah, thank you. Um, Nick is a CEO of We Are The Fair and We Are Placemaking, um, over two decades experience of the industry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure I don't need to rewind the clock, Nick, and remind you how long you've been in this industry, but it certainly has put you in a good position over the last few months to, to speak like you have done um, on behalf of the industry. Um, first of all, I suppose, give us a little bit of context about We Are The Fair and, and your place within the industry and what it is that the, the company actually does. Yeah, so uh, we are the fair effectively. We are both event producer and health and safety. We've got a risk compliance division. So we work across 132 sort of shows a year or per annum, uh, or did at least until last year. Obviously, the world changed for us all within our sector and many others. Uh, so we, <clears throat> yeah, we effectively produce shows on behalf of the promoter. The promoter generally is our client, uh, far ranging from things like Eldorado, which is a camping show, Eastern Electrics, which is an urban one day show uh, and various capacities. Our smallest show is uh, a great little show called Camp Wildfire, which is around sort of 1,000, 1,500 over a weekend. And then our bigger shows are right up to 20, 25,000. Mm -hmm. uh, then for compliance or, or the risk element, we again do health and safety licensing for various shows from things like Gotwood and Houghton uh, through to uh, on our placemaking side estates, so things like Grosvenor Estates uh, and various other London estates and also national property developers looking after effectively, you know, their event or public realm, I should say, their public realm environments where they're trying to activate and do events. Uh, and then the placemaking side, as the name suggests, uh, does lots of placemaking, but, you know, genuine placemaking, strategic alliances, and we work with lots of, you know, estates looking at curation of you know genuinely attractive and destination-led events um, yeah. that will support retail which has also had a torrid time as we've all read in the media absolutely um just doing you know very very basic maths um 132 shows that's that's well over two a week if you sort of do you know divide it over the course of a year um that's a significant workload no doubt for a significant number of people within your organization to go from that sort of figure to zero literally in the space of well 24 hours when lockdown was initially implemented you know last march um what did that sort of first four to eight weeks do to you as a business and and, and how difficult was it working under those conditions at that point point if you can cast your mind back uh yeah i mean the 16th of march was very notable i mean that's when we Obviously, there was the Boris announcement aligned with us leaving the office at that mm. point. So that was a challenging evening. Um, uh, and then effectively, yeah, the phone rang and on a daily basis, show after show, either cancelled, some only a few postponed till later in the season, you know, and I think all of us thought we may get shows, a couple of shows away in September, maybe. Mm. Uh, however, you know, obviously, as we learn more about uh, the pandemic, uh, that obviously put rights to that uh, so then everything was effectively postponed or cancelled altogether uh, until this year on the postponement side so yeah I mean the first few weeks were horrific you know we were looking at financing options you know every single option out there luckily we had a fairly short up balance sheet prior to Covid mm -hmm. you know, and one of the well you know one of my sort of strategic uh focuses over the last few years has been around placemaking to try and not have this huge crescendo um, or exponential growth, you know, in revenue just over the summer, you know, like all we wanted to try and uh, mimic that uh, over the winter as well. So have a sort yeah. of season that's continuous because we didn't, we, we're also, you know, very 
uh, culture based as an agency and we don't have lots of this, you know, sort of freelance or permalance basis, you know, for us, we, you know, we want our staff, we want to build culture within our staff, yeah. so to, you know, to effectively have a season that's continuous. And now with shows being so complex, you know, we're, it's a year round relationship, you know, I mean, you know, I don't need to tell people who are listening to this that, you know, we obviously don't turn up on a Monday and then deliver a show on a Saturday, you know, mm. around stakeholder engagement, dealing with authorities, you know, whether it's licensing, it's continuous uh, and it's never been more complex than it is, you know, currently. I'm probably going to get a little more complex given COVID. I guess so, yeah. And, and you're right, you know, you, you finish, you know, you finish one event, you pat everybody on the back, you maybe raise a, a, a cold bottle or something and toast the success of whatever event that's just finished. And then the next day you're on email and you're on the phone discussing about how it's going to run the following year. You know, it, it, it is as simple as that. Most people in the industry and who are listening to this will relate to that type of relationship. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is a year round, you know, and the, the onus on the organiser, such as ourselves, is ever more, you know, everything from, you know, you'll hear expressions like Zone X, Last Mile, you know, again, that, that didn't exist, for, you know, 10 years ago, you just opened the, you know, the exit gates and effectively centred all your attention on the boundary of the site. And that was pretty much it. Whereas now, you know, we, on our bigger shows, we classify the sort of secondary bit like Zone X, which is, you know, right up to the nearest transport hub. Uh, yeah, that's almost like a second event. We have a se separate event manager. We have a separate plan just to manage that element of egress and ingress. So, yeah, it's it, it, it's it's crazy um, going from that sort of level of of detail and thought to, to overnight, you know, pretty much having every, every event either postponed or, or cancelled for that year suddenly frees up a lot of time. One, one thing that I wanted to ask you on, on, on today's podcast that I jotted down when I was thinking about it yesterday was whether or not the luxury of having some time on your hands has, has allowed you as a business and as an organisation to maybe look at new strategies. Because one thing, having spoken to a few few different people in the industry over the last few months is that we are so busy running from event to event to event. And there is that year round management of your client portfolio that has to take place as we've already alluded to is whether or not the last year, if we to pull any positives at all, it's the opportunity to maybe take stock, refocus, look at how we can do things a little bit better, look at what we will need to implement in a post pandemic world. You know, have you allowed yourself that opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right. You do not have any time uh, to come up for air you know especially during season so mm. for us I have me especially with the senior team we've spent a lot of time you know I'm not one for just doing strategy for strategy's sake but we have looked at a, you know a proposition we are actually launching a new proposition based on the amount of workflow that's coming in around risk compliance uh, you know an extension of that and yeah I've been looking at all sorts of uh, joint ventures so we are more aligned with some of our competitors and will be as we go forward and it's been amazing you know like the support network the sort of ecosystem that exists you know I, it's been phenomenal uh, you know it's been really really interesting and engaging um, mm. so for me yeah it, we have really looked at our business we've looked at like process flows I mean, without getting too boring and granular but we've looked at everything from the top down and I think you know, as horrendous as last year was, I'll be honest, you know, two or three years ago, it just felt relentless, you know, and it just felt like you are on this sort of treadmill uh, and we weren't improving in terms of innovation, you know, show after show, you know, one of the key things in our aspiration is obviously to tweak each show to get better and better. And we were doing it to an extent, but I think now we've improved our processes where we're looking at every element, you know, we've, we've critiqued the last season. So all of 2019 sort of went under the microscope and we've implemented, you know, some really, I think, amazing things. And the team have been amazing, you know, to get through this horrendous for them as well, you know, not to be in a field, you know, some of our younger employees, I mean, that's what they thrive for and live for. And to yeah. them, you know, <laughs> it's not happening. You're going to be at home. It's just, it's really, really tough. Uh, so, you know, I think it's, it's brought us potentially, you know, even closer together. One of our key values is around sort of family and culture. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, for me, I mean, there is a silver lining and, and we've built in longer relationships with our clients. You know, we've spent a lot of time with them 
on the phone, supporting them as best we can. Uh, but we're in, a, I guess, a more fortunate position than the value chain. Supply chain has been absolutely decimated mm. by this. And, that, and that's who I really feel for. You know, we're paid, you know, we sell time effectively advancing shows. Mm. And, you know, the majority of our clients are really good and paid us up to the point of the show cancellation. You know, and that's been amazing. But obviously, the supply chain generally only get paid on delivery of inventory on site. And obviously, with no shows, that didn't happen. So for exactly, them, yeah. it's it's been horrific. I mean, some of the conversations I've had, you know, it makes you yeah quite quite sad to hear them. Given as as I said at the start of, of today's podcast, that that you've been very vocal you've represented uh, i know that you're involved in in the national outdoor events association in NOAA. um you were, uh, recently joined the, the festival dcms and public health england workforce um and you've been in and out of the media so when you've spoken about you know support for the sector is it very much that that part of the sector that, that you you think deserves some sort of support is it that supply chain element rather than the organization at the top well i think i think it's all it, it's just uh, you know, it's well, uh, it's, it's well known, but within, you know, DCMS, uh, ACE, so Arts Council England, you know, have supported, you know, they, they put, you know, 1.57 billion towards, uh, you know, our sector, whether it be, you know, more towards, you know, hospitality and venues, uh, but also loads of festivals were supported, albeit loads weren't, but very little of the supply chain was. So, you know, and in truth, those claims or grants that went in would obviously focus probably on the central office, you know, and the curation of those festivals, not necessarily the supply chain. So yes. it's not like the supply chain were benefiting from, say, a promoter getting that revenue. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, they were they were slightly, well, definitely missed. Um, so, yeah, uh, and for me, you know, we see them as partners. You know, I don't like to necessarily call them suppliers. Without them, you know, we've also yeah. spent 20 yeah. odd years getting you know our suppliers understanding how we work we understand how they work you know and they're you know they're integral to the success of a show because you know we all hear horror stories about suppliers as well you know that mm. actually don't deliver new to market so we have quite a lot of dd or due diligence that goes on yeah and we obviously onboard new suppliers so uh yeah we want them to survive i know loads of sold off inventory to other sectors like construction to shore up balance sheets yeah loads that have you know I hate the word pivoted, but effectively gone into, say, construction and thinking, well, the credit terms are better. Uh, I'm getting better payment uh, rates. So why would I come back to festivals? You know, so lots of people are disillusioned, you know, as much as they love festivals. Some, yeah. some people, it's quite a passion project. And that passion, <laughs> I think, with the strain of last year, has probably dissipated for many. Have you been able to... Um... Uh, you know how frequently are you speaking to not just your own suppliers but have you spoken to, to other suppliers in the industry who you don't necessarily use for your, for your own events to get a handle on how they are surviving what 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 sort of measures they're taking and, and is there a is there a potential that when the industry does come back and when we we are allowed to to, to start running events again hopefully this summer is there a potential to be short on suppliers and certain equipment because some companies have simply gone under or they've moved into other industries and don't want to come back to events there is a real worry i mean i've been you know very vocal at many a meeting just saying that whilst promoters are moving dates you know which is understandable but moving dates back to august september hoping that they've got the best chance of success in terms of going live mm. you know, that obviously is putting huge pressure on the inventory that's available in the uk so mm. You know, if you just take shows like, well, there's many, but, you know, say an 80,000 show, the reason everyone, you know, obviously Glastonbury's cancelled, but the reason people uh, don't necessarily compete with Glastonbury is not only the competition on tickets, but is also inventory. Like Glastonbury takes so much kit out for over, well over a month. You know, we've often had to inherit kit that's been stuck in Glastonbury. We can't get it out like trackway, you know, if it's been particularly bad weather. So it's it buried has, three foot down. Yeah, yeah, it has a huge influence on, you know, shows that are, you know, reliant on getting that kit out on time. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the same could be true in sort of August, September. There's going to be there's so many shows on that August bank holiday. So there, there is a worry. I don't, I'm not so concerned about the ticketing. I think like the, the pent up demands there. So I think tickets will sell. 
but I just I am slightly concerned about obviously the inventory being available. And like you say, some people have sold off. I know like one toilet provider sold off. They had a thousand toilets. They only have a hundred now. You know, and they're you know sort of lost. I wouldn't say lost faith, but they're close on. Well, the, um, it, the other thing that I thought about, and I'm sorry to, to cut across you, but is 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 at transport because one of the first things to go, you know, if, if you're looking to, to get some quick cash in as a business, if you've got, you know, four long wheelbase vans sat outside your unit that are not delivering kit anywhere, it's an easy thing to, to, to be able to sort of, you know, get rid of quickly, you know, and, and as that eases back in, companies have got to start maybe thinking about funding and getting their hands on vehicles. And that to me, occurred the other week and i was thinking about it that actually there could be an issue where they may have kit but but realistically not enough transport to, to get it there particularly if once industry recovers i think you're going to get so many events who are trying to you know run at a time of year where they don't usually run in order to try and recoup some lost revenue is not just the, the, the supply chain itself and having the kit to put into those events but the people the manpower the vehicles to get it from a to b quickly and quick turnaround times yeah, I mean, we have looked at that. I suppose we're in a fortunate position because of the amount of shows we have. We're actually looking at uh, private haulage and we're looking at actually running that haulage ourselves. So procuring it from, you know, more traditional sectors and then bringing them in and effectively moving our kit, almost touring lots of sets of kit mm. to these different shows. But obviously if you're running one show or two shows, that is going to be more challenging. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, you're right. and. And those people that did have, say, transport logistics within their portfolio have again pivoted into, I mean, there's never been a busier sector as there than courier. Yeah. So, you know, they're all seconded to whether it be you know, DPD, whatever. Uh, and again, they're getting really good rates of pay. Yeah. So, is, is there a scenario, are you speaking to clients at all about the possibility of, um, you know, maybe in the short term, maybe for this year, streamlining certain production elements so that stuff can sort of leapfrog fairly easily so where they may have really really specific requirements usually for their show in terms of staging in terms of you know audio lighting etc being able to make things a little bit more modular so they could be packed up quickly go somewhere else and set up quickly i mean that, that's a quite a tricky conversation to have because you know we're all trying to you know present the best customer experience possible and the last thing we need you know we need to come back I think the expectation is so high from consumers. Understandably, you know, they've got pent up demand. Also, you've got to remember some of them have rolled their tickets for, you know, over a year. You know, yeah. we're all under financial pressure. It's not like anyone necessarily is has loads of surplus cash. So I think it means a lot to them. And I think there's going to be a lot of competition. You know, for this year, I think the demand will be there. I think demand, you know, there's loads of data to suggest there's going to be, um, you know, exponential growth in shows for the next two or three years, but also means it's going to be a very competitive market. So mm -hmm. I, I think there's a real, if it's aesthetics and something that a consumer can see, I think that would be a challenge. You know, yeah. they don't want to cut back on the tech side. However, you know, we may look at streamlining like back of house stuff, like whether it's, you know, production cabins, if that's possible. Yeah. You know, anything yeah. else. But obviously with COVID, we also need to bear that in mind. You know, what we can't do is be uh, reducing people's workspace to allow for, you know, more touring elements. This is, this is again, brings, us, uh, brings me on to another point that I wanted to ask you today in terms of what, you know, a post- I hate the term in a way post pandemic world looks like it sounds like the apocalypse has come and you know we're all driving around like mad max across deserts in in v8s but um yeah I, i'm you know from a from an audience and a and a worker point of view you know what 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 is from your perspective that world looking like at the moment because i think what a lot of people read yesterday and we're, and we're recording this on the 23rd of february so yesterday yesterday evening and yesterday daytime was the announcement, if you call it that, from the Prime Minister um, with the with the roadmap um, out of lockdown with some some dates built into it that, that may or may not be hit as, as targets. Um, and a lot of people are asking instantly or, or looking at the date 21st of June, particularly Nick and saying, great. 21st of June, big knees up and everything from then onwards is going to be hunky-dory. Realistically, what's it going to look like come sort of July, August, if, if those targets are here? Will this, you know, are festivals planning to have social distancing to reduce numbers? You know, what's the actual makeup and physical areas going to have to look like? Yeah, I mean, the work I do with uh, on the task force of Public Health England, ever since day one, 
you know, I sit with, there's probably 20 other promoters, maybe slightly mm. less, uh, varying capacities, but the general assumption or methodology we are approaching it with is social distancing is a really hard control measure to implement. So yeah. effectively delivering shows without social distancing. But what we have been looking at is, is there other sensible controls that we can introduce? A, you know, one of the most important things is also customer confidence, you know, regardless of the pandemic. Of all ages, you know, shockingly, very recently, some surveys have suggested all ages are nervous about returning, you know, into that environment. So we need to give, whether it's perceptive or is a control measure, we need to make customers feel, you know, comfortable. So we've been looking at, you know, controls around service points, you know, whether it's F and B, merchandising areas. Um, but yeah, the realism of say trying to implement social distancing front of main stage is i would suggest null impossible yeah, however yeah. you know we have got a couple of shows we are doing social distancing but that was always the plan regardless of the roadmap last night mm -hmm. you know and that's a different audience and they can sit in their pods of six you know and it's not like a dance show where you expect people to get up and dance at you know front of main stage so mm -hmm. th there are and obviously drive-ins i'm sure we'll see more of those but in general um yeah we expect social distancing to be a control we can't implement but we'll do everything else in our power uh, to make people feel safe and we you know we're the leading practitioners in the world on health and safety so exactly you know, right. and no one wants that super spread a headline do they so i think you know all promoters are pragmatic and sensible as are we you know we're not going to risk the audience or ourselves you know we've got a lot of crew that are going to be on site but it is going to be a disease we live with i think you know the public health england have very openly you know discussed this is endemic rather than pandemic now so like flu it's you know it's a control we're going to have to do whether it's an analyzed jab for the more vulnerable etc you know it's going to be with us for some time um and it's how we you know how we sensibly approach that yeah, the, the 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 statistics and the sort of the daily figures that are coming back at the moment, particularly this week, um, regarding the effectiveness of of the two main vaccines in the UK at the moment, the Pfizer and the and the Oxford vaccine, are, are hugely promising. Looking at not just how they are stopping people from becoming severely ill or catching COVID, but also and of particular interest for me is is that they are clearly reducing transmission anybody who has had the vaccine it's clear that they present a very a significantly lower risk of transmitting the virus on and that is key certainly in the events world and as you quite rightly point out you can make a a main arena at a festival bigger and assume then that by putting the same amount of people into a bigger space they're all going to spread out nicely they won't you know there's a stage there there is a focal point they've come to see those artists they will gravitate towards the front that that will happen so i think you're right to point out that it's it's the other measures that we have to take that, that are in our control in terms of sanitization stations in terms of when they are out of an, the arena space or away from a stage you know can you control the distancing around food vendors around you know beverage um in campsites etc one thing i wanted to ask you was the subject of certification again that, that's something that cropped up last night and was and was put to the prime minister um and there's been a lot of talk in the industry about call them what you want covid passports vaccine passports um apps that are being trialed at the moment to to dovetail in with ticketing systems where do you stand on that as a subject and is it something that you've sort of explored and discussed within any of your groups yeah i mean it's a hotly debated topic um obviously huge concerns are around you know privacy and data breach so that, yeah so there's two sides to it i mean it's a very you know politicized debate um but effectively you know it might be the way through this i mean especially for travel corridors i mean if you know if a foreign uh you know body effectively implements it's nothing we can do it may be a protocol that we have to adopt if yeah. we want to travel i appreciate yeah. that's not to festivals uh so i think it, it, yeah it, there's there's loads of challenges with it you know people are really concerned rightfully does it mean that you know all of my health history then you know becomes part of this sort of health passport sure, uh, yeah. but you know there are some good news you know good news stories around it i mean what i have learned is you know there's a data point for every vaccination so effectively that data already exists and apparently that can already uh, be implemented and um, integrated into the nhs app and my gp app so that that's a positive you know in fact the, the data already exists so that integration is available but obviously then it's the 
is the political debate of whether you know that's the route. I think the government are quite resistant to doing it, but and also as you come down the age groups, we've already got data coming through that the adoption of a vaccine will obviously be lesser and lesser, you know, understandably. So you know, if you implement that, what do you do with someone who presents who hasn't got a vaccine? You know, then you get into is it discrimination? You know, the same. I was on another call recently around employment. You know, on cruise, is it? You know, that's effectively discrimination isn't it if you say well you can only get employed if you have this vaccine sure yeah. uh, um so it is i think it's gonna you know this debate is not going away and it's going to be something that's ever increasing but the fa implemented it uh not a health passport as such but you know you had to present a negative test um yes. so I, I think it will it will be something that will resurface probably daily I, I, I think so. I don't think there's any getting getting away from this subject at the moment. And, and until there's sort of, you know, a definitive answer on it and which way they want to go, I think a couple of things will happen. It will rage as a debate and certainly the, 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 the counter argument of it discriminating against people who choose not to have the vaccine. And I said this on a, on a previous podcast in the last couple of weeks with with our guest Liz Taylor, um, that you know, my own personal view on it is 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 likening it very much to when the smoking ban came in a few years ago, is that it wasn't taking away people's choice to smoke. It was simply saying that if you want to do that, you now have to do it outside. So you're not putting others at risk. Yeah. And I think there's a similarity, you know, it, it may sound extreme, but there's a similarity here whereby nobody's taking away people's right to not have the vaccine. But there may be a decision that has to be made to say that, if you choose not to have it, that's absolutely within your rights and you're entitled to do that. But you may forego, you know, the opportunity to come inside and put other people potentially at risk. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the, the default position on that would be either you have obviously the vaccination passport, call it what you will, or you present a negative test if you've got concerns. And yes. I think at that point, you know, as a, you know, we're governed under reasonably practical and duty of care. You know, we wouldn't be presenting a good duty of care if we said, oh, it doesn't matter if you've either got a negative test or you've had a vaccination. So I think at that point, you know, we're trying to create the safest environment possible. That's, that's what we're leading towards. So I think either or uh, there needs to be an acceptance. And yeah, of course, if you don't want to have a negative or a test regime or protocol prior and don't want that, then unfortunately, that is probably going to suppress your options in terms of the hospitality industry. That's, that's a great, great point that you've raised there. And, and um, it is the fact that if somebody doesn't want to have the vaccine and they they are therefore unable to prove that they've had the vaccine, um, then there is that option now of, of testing, you know. And, and one thing that, um, you know, I, I'm acutely aware of is that, you know, at the start of all of this pandemic, it was, you know, we were hearing stories of, you know, two days you know 48 hours to get a test to find out if you were if you were positive um and now we're in a fantastic position less than a year on where you can order lateral flow kits and get a result within 30 minutes which if you think about some of the cues that you see to get into a music festival of you know campers queuing up you know there are long queues at, at music festivals to actually get through the gates get your wristbands and get onto site that presents in itself possibly an opportunity where lateral flow testing could be deployed somebody could be given a test at the start when they join the line and by the time they get to the front they could have the result back yeah i mean there are big challenges around that again I, i've been probably one of the more naysayers in our groups just because you know, I want to adopt the aviation model. So, you know, not the burden, but the onus is put onto the attendee and whether it's test at home kits, because I think, you know, it will be readily available through retail at some point, or there's, yes. there's a mass testing regime nationally run by the NHS, you know, which happened up in Liverpool. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously there's a secondary debate. People have been saying, well, you can manipulate the test just like if you said to people, you know, here's a drink driving, you self-administer. Uh, obviously you can manipulate it to be negative but when I've been to a testing centre I wasn't supervised so the same would be true in that environment and then I think anything's better than nothing but I think doing it on the door you've just got to if you're going to do it properly effectively everyone needs to remain sterile until they've had that result so you've got to think of the amount of infrastructure needed to contain say 10,000 people would be quite difficult yeah uh, it's, it's, it's a very fair point and I suppose it, you know a, a strong element a large element of your business is dealing with the health and safety side of of, of, of events and when you are looking at risk and, and mitigating risk that's that's 
you know, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but very much what it's about. You're never going to get risk down to absolute zero. It's all about mitigating risk, but you can never eliminate it completely. And I guess that if you put the faith in the festival goer or the event goer to do a test in advance and come with a certificate to show that, you're you're putting your faith in the fact that they want to come to that event. They're desperate to come to that event, a lot of people. They want to be there. Therefore, the vast majority of them will do morally the right thing. Yeah. And you are never going to be able to eliminate the risk of a contingent of people fudging it. Exactly like you can't eliminate the risk of people trying to get contraband into a festival site, no matter yeah, how yeah. stringent your security checks are. You know, it, it yeah. will always be there. And you'd hope there's a moral obligation to their peer group. You know, if they if they're not doing it and they're going with their friends, which generally at a festival it's all about, you know, that social interaction with your friends. Uh, especially in advance and then you may meet other people on site so there's a moral obligation there is to protect them you know if you feel uh, or manipulate the test and then prove to happen to have covid and then pass it on to one of your best friends who you know tragically then loses their life uh, you know i think there is a moral and you'd hope in society that still exists and i think it does i think people are you know taking it seriously i don't think in general there's always going to be some like you say contraband the same thing you know there's always a percentage of the audience that will will try that on and i yeah, hope that's true yeah absolutely well it, when we sort of flip uh, over to the opposite side of of, of uh, the event and look at the actual operations and the staff and the crew and the people that are coming on site to work there um you mentioned from a discriminatory point of view you know being able to tell somebody they can't work because they haven't had a vaccine is very, very difficult from an employment perspective. Therefore, a lateral flow testing scenario or a, an advanced testing scenario with the air, uh, 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 aviation um, presents itself as, as a possibility. What sort of budget issues is it going to have on an event where they may have to plan to lose 5% of their staff or crew potentially if they test negative in advance you know last minute and they suddenly they can't work on site and they need to bring in additional crew members to complete a particular task you know that's going to have budget impacts and what sort of planning is being done around that at the moment and is there a sort of a figure that the industry is working towards as a contingency to say look we're going to have to plan an extra five or ten percent you know worth of manpower into an event yeah i mean we're looking at uh, i mean i can't go into the actual margin but effectively we are looking at a bill cost because it's not just that, it's, it's all the exponential costs associated. So like sanitation that you've already spoken about, mm -hmm. water provision, you know, service points potentially being expanded. Um, you know, there are huge costs. And I think, you know, there's a myth, well, many people in the industry know, but, you know, we're, we're not sat on millions of pounds of margin on a show. You know, it's yeah. very slim after you've got talent. You know, the costs of producing a show have gone up year on year for all the reasons I said at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. The onus is so much more on us than it's ever been, you know, from, like I said, you know, managing all of the egress into the nearest transport hub, you know, has a huge cost, even if it's expensive. So I think all of that is something we're considering now and looking at, and we need to be realistic. I mean, we're governed under reasonably practical and we're doing everything we can um, to look at that. So like you say, recruiting, whether they work in bubbles. I mean, we're working on the, on this guidance. We're looking at sort of seven areas from ventilation, close contact, which is looking at things like the ingress, you know, search regime protocols, uh, looking at sort of practical solutions on crewing. So, you know, do we have, well, we will have an increase in sanitation cycles, but, you know, less sharing of equipment like plant, you know, people in different bubbles but all of that comes with a cost you know duplication of say a forklift or uh you know a cherry picker obviously it's double the amount of cost and then you've got transport on top to get it to site so you know there are concerns uh, and we're still trying to work through um you know what those sort of costs could look like and this guide mm -hmm. that we're working with um public health England dcms you know should be forthcoming i mean we're hoping to get the sort of first draft we've all inputted into it around mid-March and hopefully it'll be published by the end of March um, yeah. which will hopefully help as a guide but it is only a guide you know it's not one size fits all it's you know <laughs> everyone adopts it obviously into their own plans yeah is there um this is a very very sort of specific line of question here but one thing that 
we've all learned to do in the last year is wash our hands more frequently that's something we've been told to do yeah. wash your hands wash your hands wash your hands and just yesterday the health secretary matt hancock was saying again this is the sort of thing that needs to continue post-pandemic you know that the the, the the subjects are washing your hands and where i'm going with this is is that going to put pressure on that particular element of infrastructure because at festivals particularly most toilets for example just have sanitizer gel or the foam in them are we now going to have to put in a lot more temporary water supply so that people can wash their hands and not just use a hand gel? And is that going to put a pressure on supplies of temporary water um, to events? Yeah, I mean, we used to have, uh, and many organisers used to be quite reliant on bowsers or tankers, whereas now, I mean, maybe we're in a more fortunate position, but most of ours are, you know, close to urban environments. Mm -hmm. so we tap into the main supply. So, you know, that shouldn't be an issue but obviously then looking at things like if you have to heat all the water that would be a real challenge on site but you know i think like alcohol gels sanitation you know that i believe you know does have the same effect as long as it's implemented you know properly so yes. again i think you know and i think people i see it on you know we're already on some sites whether it's within you know placemaking and people are you know, fairly self-sufficient. I mean, where I happen to live as a film set, uh, a warehouse that's used regularly, you know, and everyone there, for example, is, you know, carrying consistently their own hand sanitizer. You know, I think it's so embedded in our regime. I mean, they talk about, you know, eight weeks to embed a, a culture of routine, whereas now we've been doing it for so long. Um, you know, I think people will take it upon themselves to also be quite responsible. Uh, hey, absolutely. The face mask thing is the, is the, is the sort of the biggest um, uh, sort of benchmark uh, for, for that adoption of a, 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 and something becoming a habit, as far as I'm concerned. You know, a few years back, you know, we all looked at Michael Jackson walking around in his, his face mask and think, what an absolute loon. <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 and similarly, you know, you see somebody walk past you in the street when you're walking through central London or central Manchester or somewhere. And we're like, well, what are they doing with a face mask on? And now suddenly in a short period of time, everybody's got one on in the supermarket. People can't walk around Aldi without, you know, without a face mask on. So it just shows you that if if people see a, a genuine reason for it and they suddenly realise, right, that, that's got to happen, our, our attitudes towards face masks have changed significantly, I think. And when it was being spoken about just this morning about, you know, a moral obligation on people maybe to, to wear face masks of their own choice when they're on public transport and things like that. I think we will see that. I think people will realise that it's an issue um, and, it, and it will help. And I yeah. think at some point we probably have to take a step back and put our faith in in the people. And, and as well, you know, we all need to, I think for far too long, in society we're so reliant uh, to fall back on the sort of health and safety protocols you know i think it's been ebbing away but effectively we need to also take on our own risk assessment i mean we do it every single day when you cross the road whatever you are taking on and you know looking yeah. at your own risk so yeah, yeah i think the same is true we i've been talking about it passionately around festivals but again if you decide to go front of stage into that mosh pit you've got to underwrite that own risk assessment yourself you know and think actually you know a i don't feel comfortable or b you know i'm you know concerned about transmission mm. you know, where i'm trying to focus on is i don't want to be detrimental to that customer experience and uh, you know it would be their right obviously to go to any sort of f and b outlet because that's part of the experience whereas you know if you go to front of stage obviously i appreciate it is part of the experience but if you've got delays and stuff then hopefully it won't be so detrimental um, this is the thing from a technical production point of view, you know, whether or not we're, we're, I think inevitably we will see shows reassessing things like not just delay towers, which are commonplace anyway, but, you know, zones that are not at front of the main stage or at the front of a stage where people can maybe feel like they are immersed in the experience of the live event, be that a band or a DJ or whatever the live artist is, um, you know, perhaps a rethinking of the arena layout so that it's not just about putting delay towers in to give people who are not lucky to be at the front some audio, but at, about creating zones that they can experience in that are maybe a bit, you know, less congested. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing we may see this summer is less, uh, less marquees, you know, less enclosed so big top arenas, mm. just because, you know, all of the data suggests outdoor, you know, is a far safer way. And obviously, if you're then going to present an enclosed environment, that could increase incrementally your risk. Obviously, that comes with other challenges on the technical side, like noise bleed. 
you know, from yeah. one to two. That's one of the reasons we use big tops uh, is to obviously suppress the sound lead. So yeah, all of these things, and, and I think this is the challenge that no one can underestimate is, you know, COVID has also brought uh, a much a much more uh, sort of uh, a much more reduced uh, production schedule and advancing time. You know, we are, as I said before, working on these things all year round. And most of our shows we have been advancing. But I think some promoters out there will be only starting to advance now or may still wait. And that could be dangerous in the fact that they'll miss other things. You know, putting on a show for 10, 20,000 people is a huge undertaking. You know, it's not just about COVID, there's everything else. You know, you're responsible, you're building almost like a village, mm. you know, 48 hours, however long that may be. And the responsibility sits with you, you know, and on many shows as, you know, I'm, uh, <clears throat> you know, affected at the top of that hierarchy, you know, it, ultimately it comes to me. And if anything goes wrong, <laughs> you know, uh, it comes to us, you know. Buck, so, buck's got to stop somewhere. Yeah. And we don't want, you know, we don't want that dreaded, you know, COVID litigation claim or yeah. any precedent set i mean it'd be very hard to prove that obviously you know you've got covid at a particular event still it's just you know it, it is very challenging i think you know the days of those cowboy uh, event organizers have long gone there's an awful lot of undertaking yeah yeah absolutely I, it'd be interesting to see what sort of um picture it it paints in terms of insurances and event insurance you know going forward and it may be something that you you've already i've no doubt probably explored and looked into and spoken to but but i guess unless we get events back running again and we see what happens you know it's the kind of thing that's chicken and egg situation isn't it you know you have to see where things are going and whether or not that has any impact on on the sort of the insurance underwriting of of events and and whether or not you know the health and safety officers who are responsible there have to do any additional training or, or qualify to a certain level in order to be able to advise on COVID related safety. You know, um, th there's all sorts of things that, that, that spurs out of what, yeah. you know, today is a pretty sort of simple discussion. The insurance is debated. Yeah. Consistently. I think now, you know, my argument prior was everyone made parallels to TV and film, you know, why aren't we getting underwriting? The, the difficulty there is obviously film and TV and up and running and operational. So any underwriter would be absolutely, uh, well, yeah, they wouldn't be doing their job if they were to suggest that the industry was viable at that point. You know, I know as insulting as that sounds, however, now with some green light dates, there is a market to underwrite. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if in Rishi's announcement in the budget, uh, that reinsurance market debate is reopened or even, uh, you know, or even talked about at that budget that there will be some sort of underwriting like they've done in both Germany and the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that will get the market moving. I mean, at the moment, essentially, as, as excitable as we can all get about the 21st, you know, if you're really looking at reducing your risk, you can't actually green light a show to the 14th of June mm -hmm. you know, because they're going to give two weeks notice. So effectively, you are at risk financially exposed until that point. So whatever money you pay to the supply chain, that show you don't know they may say there may be a failing in the supply chain for vaccinations etc you know yeah. we are last of those phases and there's still a long way to go i wouldn't you know it's a nightmare isn't it if you've got a show planned for friday 25th 6th 7th of yeah. june you're in complete no man's land because you know it could realistically get two weeks before the show and they say right we're going to put that 21st date back a week in which case you're absolutely shafted you know and i think there has to be some sort of there has to be something in place to allow organizers to commit you know if they've said that those dates are potential i think people have every right in some respects to say look with a fair wind if we hit these dates we could do our event there but we want some sort of protection if those dates get pushed back you yeah. know it's not fair to just get two weeks before them and say sorry plug pulled guys yeah we're out think, of pocket again i think we will see that the netherlands you know they went through a similar uh yeah similar sort of cycle where they announced you know no show before date which was the first of july mm -hmm. and then effectively if you had a show date after that they would underwrite it and they right. put a considerable amount of fun towards it and i think that is it's just you know so many sectors are affected you know i mean not just us but everything travel everything. everyone's crying out for it yeah. you know that you know you, i see people 
on LinkedIn, a guy that I'm connected with, you know, who's works in the in the fitness industry, you yeah. know, and, and they're having they're banging the same drums. You know, I'm not to devalue it, to use that term, but they're they're you know, they're saying you know, gyms, the industry's on its knees, you know, yeah. they're, they're trainers, staff, equipment companies, all the peripherals, they've got a similar sort of supply chain. There are a lot of sort of parallels with the events industry, you know, and um, yeah. that they're on they're on their knees at the moment. Um, and they're crying out for similar sort of help and protection. And they haven't had that necessarily. Loaded sectors haven't had, you know, as horrendous as it's been, you know, and we genuinely didn't have any, you know, at all any trading uh, for many people. I mean, we we were really fortunate with the health and safety side, but, uh, you know, we have had the Arts Council England funding for many people within the sector, the promoter side, whereas, you know, gyms, I don't know much about aviation. I know they've had loans, but in terms of grants, less so you know and it's wide reaching isn't it i mean professional services every sector no one's not affected exactly. um i mean maybe video <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah if, if you if you work at netflix you're all right you've been all right yeah so um so i think yeah it's it's hard isn't it to keep banging on but yeah i mean i live and breathe this this sector and all the work i do you know aif as well yeah absolutely well it was interesting the aif you know were, were quick to respond yesterday weren't they you know that there was a statement up on on the website very very quickly you know and quite rightly supporting in principle what had been said but understandably and and i back it completely raising ongoing concerns about what needs to be addressed for things to happen and you know i could i congratulate certainly the work that the aif have been doing um to sort of maintain a constant um, I'll call it a barrage of of, <laughs> of of information in a good way, you know, because uh, unfortunately, if you don't, it, w once you stop banging in the drum in a situation like we've been in, you quickly get forgotten about. And I think yeah. people in the industry have every right to bang the drum to make sure that they're not forgotten about. And, never, um, and you know, never as associations been more important. You know, we've been lobbying really hard and. Uh, AIF amongst other associations were instrumental in getting Arts Council England to reassign you know over one billion pounds to our sector because mm -hmm. prior to that without all the lobbying that many of the associations within you know the live have been doing uh, yeah. it wasn't going to get assigned at all it was mm -hmm. going to it was meant for more cultural institutions yeah, um, yeah. Not us. so it has been incredible and, you know, another silver lining is just maybe 12 months ago, many ministers, many MPs, you know, were completely uh, in the dark in terms of our sector. They didn't yeah. know what vessels were, apart from Glastonbury mm. or, you know, maybe Wilderness because a few of them live near there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, we have got, you know, much better positioning. And they, I think some of them genuinely see, you know, all of the benefits. It's not just about the, the show, it's the economic benefits of the whole you know the region where a show is you know yeah. it have an impact. you look at reading festival and where it's situated yeah. you know the, the 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 economic benefits that it brings because it's it's a greenfield festival but it's in a relatively urban area in terms of accessibility and the sort of the business that the supermarkets and the corner shops do you know with, with people sort of walking towards the festival site and calling and picking up another case of beer or you know whatever yeah. it is that, that, that they're buying on the way in you know there's a huge economic benefit to a town like that because because of the festival and what it brings to it and the whole ecosystem for artists you know they are never they're so reliant on that live revenue you know obviously sales as we all know are nothing like they were maybe 10 15 years ago so now sales sales nobody sells any music yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they get their, I mean. they get their 10 pence from spotify yeah. once a decade yeah so for them you know they're reliant from the massive artists but all of the ecosystem and all of the you know the more emerging artists are so reliant from you know nightclubs right through to festivals you know without yeah. that they need to live as well so you know the ecosystem i think is often you know it's very uh, granular or seen in quite a granular view it's huge ecosystem i mean it's worth billions of pounds absolutely uh, it, yeah. you know it is crumbling and you know that's why we've been so desperate for support uh, absolutely and and um it's something that we need to continue the discussion on and um you know this is an open invitation to nick and and to anybody else who's, who's sort of doing you know being very vocal about it nick if you you know at any point if you want to come back on the podcast and if there's anything specific that you'd like to talk about you know as as much as we can do to get 
you know, word out into the channels that we've got available via Event Industry News, then then we're here to here to support the sector. And you know, open invitation, mate. Anytime you want to come on and talk about this, okay. then come come on, get that drum and bang it as hard as you need to. No, brilliant. I appreciate that. Adam. Um, we've been talking on the podcast today to Nick Morgan, CEO of We Are The Fair and We Are Placemaking. Um, if you want to find out more about what those guys do, they're really easy to find. You know, Google We Are The Fair and you'll land on their website very easily. And similarly, Nick, uh, social media handles, anything specific that you want to shout out? Where should people find you? Yeah, well, we're at uh, We Are The Fair uh, on Instagram. Um, so, yeah, do do look us up. I'm on LinkedIn. So by all means, uh, if I can help I, you know i'm very passionate about this sector i just want to get it off its knees and back up and running you know i think we all thrive for being back in the field as yeah. much as we might have moaned two years ago about how exhausting a season is uh, i think for my team alone we just want to be back you know with the audience uh, and back with our promoters yeah. And as Nick pointed out, you know, there's lots of trade associations doing lots of great things at the moment. Um, and, you know, if you listen to this podcast today, go and search for, you know, AIForg.com. Go and look up NOAA, National Outdoor Events Association. Go and look up, you know, the, the, the AEV, the AEO, all these different associations that are out there have been do, that have been working hard to, to keep um things in the media and, and keep as i said banging this drum you know go on to linkedin there are loads of groups and pages that have been set up that are you know loads of really good useful information that people are spending time digging up and publishing on these platforms so that people who work in the industry can access and see clearly what's affecting them directly because Unfortunately, the mainstream media will post a general picture of things that are not necessarily industry specific. So if you want to be industry specific and you want to stay abreast of what's happening, then I urge you, as Nick would, I'm sure, to go to some of these association websites and LinkedIn pages and groups and, and find out what's happening. Um, Nick, thanks very much for joining us today. It's been great to have you on. Thank you very much. And uh, if, you, uh, if you are watching today's video of the podcast on the website, then uh, I would say why, first of all, why would you want to look at me on a video? Uh, get over to your podcast platform and listen to it whilst you're out walking your dog or something like that. And you're soaking all that information whilst you're enjoying the fresh air that Great Britain allows you as well. Um, of course, if you are listening to this already, you can, if you'd like, hop over to eventindustrynews.com and check out some of the news and features that are on there and access the stuff that's there rather than looking at a video of me it's much more enjoyable i can assure you um nick thanks again for joining us today we hope to see you in the next uh you know few months find out what's happening hopefully as we progress down this roadmap that was set out yesterday and things become a little bit clearer and we hit some of these key dates we can talk to you to see what's happening in the industry and uh, get a feel for how things hopefully fingers crossed will be opening up again in the summertime good to see you today thanks a lot thank you very much mm -hmm.